Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I'm your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kalyagin. And this episode, we're coming at you in the midst of what appears to be one of the largest escalations in the ongoing Third World War since we started this show. The United States has conducted dozens, if not, you know, almost 100 strikes at this point across Yemen on Houthi targets. Of course, this is a rapid escalation and is separate from the Operation Prosperity Guardian naval operation that we've discussed in the past. Of course, there's things going on in Chabad Lubavitch headquarters, 770 in Brooklyn. Of course, that happened right after we stopped recording last show, so you're going to get our take on the tunnels. Things going on in Ukraine and Russia, of course. Things going on in Germany as the right rises across the European Union. Civil war in Ecuador. U.S.-Mexico border is leading to intense clashes between Texas State Police and Federal Border Patrol. So things going on across the map. Dimitri, it looks a little grim, but it's also very exciting. How are you doing? Doing good. And I just wanted to say we are amidst the mitzvah. And in fact, we are seeing the Red Sea, of course, uh, is properly now engulfed in flames. Uh, again, the red hot war between the US and the Navy of the UK. And I would say just the entire NATO Navy and the Houthis has properly begun. More than 100 missiles were fired, fired in the last few days. This is the middle of January 2024. And confirmed targets all over the Houthi held uh, Yemeni's um, end of you know the the arabian peninsula has been reported although you know as always in in similar strikes in afghanistan and other places in the middle east you begin to question really quickly just how much damage was wrought by these expensive million dollar missiles of the us the uk shot from their ships shot from their uh, f-22 planes would the missile even be worth more than the target that it actually struck and in fact of course the Americans and the and the British are reporting almost no losses, right? There's apparently two sailors drowned off the coast of Africa somewhere in a completely unrelated case, American sailors. So, but we have we'll keep an eye out on that story in particular. Maybe it'll be one of those scenarios where actually two men did die to something Houthi related, and in fact they were reported as drowned, and only later will their families actually find out. But that's a little bit conspiratorial. But let's get back to like the actual facts reported by all these famous and wonderful news outlets. And we are seeing that, like, no, look, the official reports are no American planes were hit in this particular strike. No American ships were hit, although there is footage naturally circulating everywhere that, you know, there's, there's a ship with some smoke coming out of it, things like that. And the Houthis themselves are not really making too many outrageous claims either. So, but we are seeing that the Houthis will be retaliating in the next few days, right? Retaliating for the American strikes on them and uh, on their territory because again this is very similar to i mean it's more targeted and probably a bit more precise than what israel is doing to hamas and gaza so let's just keep that in mind it's not like obama era droning of children things like that but i'm still assuming there were probably innocent yemenese people actually killed in these strikes so it's the first wave a lot of people were of course speaking about world war three so that rhetoric is back the show's as relevant as ever unfortunately you know it's it's almost as if the show was actually started to cover these events, which it, which it was. And, you know, even Donald Trump came out with a quick clip uh, when the strikes began. And, you know, this is everybody felt like it was a new Iraq war situation. So even Donald Trump said said that Joe Biden is mentally unstable, mentally insane. And he has we, we will bring us into World War Three if we don't reelect Trump and actually save America and save the world, which uh, I think he may be partially right. But very intense situation for the Houthis. And we mentioned a few weeks ago, like these guys are really tough, tougher, if not as tough as the people of the Donetsk, Lugansk cities, as tough as the Taliban. 
you know, they've held out. And in fact, if you look at the history, the Saudi Arabian Houthi war started right, right, right around the same time as the Minsk Accords, so 20, 2015. So they're about as battle-hardened as the people of Donetsk and Lugansk who took back Mariupol, Bakhmut, all these other cities from the incredibly overpowered, I guess you could say, through Western armaments, Ukrainian military. So the Houthis are, you know, incredibly skilled. They probably positioned, you notice the strikes, Conrad, on the map, they positioned their uh, infrastructure, spread it out so well that the US and UK need to actually pinpoint target various random spots around the map in order to actually, uh, you know, hit any sort of sustainable infrastructure of the Houthis. And this pro probably primarily includes military infrastructure as well as some factories, which where they suspect the Houthis are either storing or rearming some of these long-range missiles through which they were actually shooting the, you know, the the big Satan behind the scenes, which is Israel. So I kind of view this in a very funny fashion because on one hand, I'm like, well, my sort of white history, like my, you know, my ancestry tells me like, okay, wait, these are just Middle Eastern pirates, right? They're stopping shipping lanes. They're raiding ships. This is just like the Somalian pirate situation. We have to, you know, you have to stop them, stomp them into the ground, destroy piracy. But on the other hand, the Houthis are actually not doing this for any commercial gain. The only reason they've declared the, you know, the Red Sea Straits in the South as a potential target is because they they're trying to protect their own Islamic brethren, brethren from genocide and annihilation in the Middle East, in Palestine and Gaza. So their um, motives for actually stopping trade and for actually sustainable, you know, shooting these missiles at Israel are completely. Uh, somewhat justifiable you could say you know which is really interesting it's not like so i think this view that the uh operation prosperity guardian is trying to force upon us is that this is just like somalian pirates it's just about a, a bunch of like rowdy middle easterners who need to be put down but in fact the reality is it's actually a almost the houthis are this uh you know second third world humanitarian mission to the palestinians which now in america and the the uk and all these western ships they're trying to actually stop so the Houthis, are, you know, they almost have actual virtue behind their actions here. And the U.S. and the U.K., well, they're fighting for money. That's a really good way to put it because they're doing, they took the leverage that they had at their disposal. They thought, we have this much equipment, we have these boats, we have these men, what can we do? And what they could do was bring the Red Sea and the Bab el-Mandeb Straits and the Gulf of Aden to a halt. And they did that. And they hit Eilat where they thought they could. You know, Israel was right at the extent of their medium range, which is the most they have, missile range. So... They launched him at Israel, they did some things, and so they're maxing out the leverage that they have at their disposal to, like you said, bring aid to their Islamic brethren in Gaza. And again, this shows you that it is about helping their Islamic brothers, but there is a deeper civilizational, ontological antipathy between specifically the Houthis, but also, of course, specifically the Shia world and then the Muslim world broadly against the Zionist entity. Because look, I mean, Hamas, Gaza, that's Sunni territory, you know, that is, you know, it's on the border with Egypt, you know, this is not really part of the Shia crescent that really ends up, you know, around Syria and Lebanon and then wraps around with Iraq, Syria, Iran, down into the Houthis being the other kind of end, I guess, of that crescent of the Shia world. But, of course, the, the antipathy for Israel, the understanding that Israel is a perpetual threat to the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Islamic heritage of Jerusalem, I mean, we're seeing this, again, it's it's... It's you could call it kind of ecumenical anti-Zionism or ecumenical anti-Semitism is kind of bridging some of these gaps. And we're seeing kind of a Christian consciousness like this arise. Many people may have watched the Vince James, Nick Fuentes versus Gavin McInnes, Adam King Zionism debate. And by the end of the debate, Vince and Fuentes just got Adam King, the Zionist Jew, 
to basically admit without even hesitation that he would eliminate Christianity from the world before he eliminated Islam. And his partner in the debate, Gavin McInnes, is Catholic and literally got up and walked away when that happened. So this sort of, uh, this understanding that whether it's Muslims understanding that, you know, Shia, Sunni are both going to be targeted by Zionists or Christians in the West understanding that, wow, even in the midst of the Gaza war, Jews would still side with Muslims over Christians, then yeah, I mean, maybe maybe the battle lines have been drawn and we're just now realizing it. And I, I mean, we as in, you know, the unenlightened normies that are slowly but surely realizing, you know, that we in the West have been used as a tool to wage, you know, Talmudic war against against i mean right now we're involved like you said you mentioned this is just some irrelevant group of sand pirates not exactly they have a humanitarian religious aim but at the same time because of this whole situation and because of israeli influence in america us we in america have been dragged into this you know this sand merchant dispute you know because we we act as you know the muscle for israel and of course People have made a million comments about it. Follow Philip Pilkington. He has great economic trade routes analysis. But, you know, the age of unlimited free trade around the world because the U.S.-U.K. naval behemoth thalassocracy will protect ships, that's, that's gone now. I mean, we have to basically expect that in any of these choke points in these relevant positions, actors that find themselves on the other end of any number of blocks, whether it's the global American block, whether it's some kind of Chinese block, you know, there's going to be conflict and perhaps even violence for shipping rights, for trade routes, for these sorts of things. So it's it's all part of this new multipolar world. But another update on these these strikes, of course, they're kind of the big news item right now. And 20 plus have been confirmed killed in Yemen. Multiple of those, I believe, are civilians. So it's only going to further radicalize the already fully anti-America, anti-Israel Houthis. Like there's probably nowhere in the world more anti-Israel, anti-America than Yemen, maybe even more so than the West Bank and Palestine, and maybe not Gaza. That's 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 another topic we're going to talk about exactly what Israel's plans are, because we're getting totally contradictory claims that we need total occupation versus no plans for total occupation. So that's probably just to keep the U.S. confused so they don't come out with a full-blown condemnation. But as far as the strikes on Yemen go, Mohammed uh, Abdul Salam, who's a Houthi spokesperson, he told Reuters, uh, that the strikes, including these ones overnight, they hit a military base in Sana, but had no significant impact on the group's ability to prevent Israel-affiliated vessels from passing through the Red Sea and the Arabian Sea. Of course, at this point, like I said, the Houthis' response was that they will have a, a increased and dramatic response, so we're going to be watching for that. Of course, the news of the F-22s and supposed ships being hit and shot out of the sky have been denied by Western news outlets, but again... If America did lose an F-22, would they admit it? I mean, that's, you know, obviously, of course, the Houthis might be going harder claiming it was true if it was, so I'm still skeptical. But again, there are all sorts of possibilities that could go down, and the U.S. is going to try to deny any of it and prevent it from reaching the public eye because that's what really stokes a big reaction and gets people, you know, voted out of office. And of course, this is an election year, and Biden is tanking lower than was ever previously thought, we're going to get into the upcoming Iowa caucus, which of course will be, if you're listening to this on Sunday, that'll be on Monday right after you listen. So you'll get the news of how well Trump is going to do. But these strikes in uh, Yemen, while they were of course ordered by the Biden regime and whatnot, apparently Lloyd Austin, you know, supervised them himself from his hospital bed. Is this all in the, of course, the U.S., you know, escalates militarily the most it has in the past, you know, five plus years while the Secretary of Defense is apparently in a pretty unfortunate medical condition with some complications from a surgery for pancreatic cancer. 
And apparently Biden only knew about this after the surgery, and it was all sorts of... Apparently this is... Multiple people have said that this is obvious evidence of a diplomatic feud behind the scenes and total breakdown in communication at the executive level between, you know, the the White House and the State Department and the Pentagon itself. So big, uh, I guess, trouble in Brandonville in D.C. these days. So that might be why, you know, maybe some of these strikes are being, you know, they're kind of trying to downplay them, but then the the reporting on it was interesting. They were saying that, you know, we're going to have a few strikes, and then the strikes got more, then they did a few strikes, and then after that there were some really more dramatic strikes, almost with no announcement a few 12, 24 hours later. So it's a very interesting strategy that is clearly trying to make a point and send a message to the Houthis without widening the already, like, actively widening conflict. Because this comes as, you know, Itamar Ben-Gavir, one of the main guys on the Israeli Security Council, talking about how we need preemptive strikes against Hezbollah. And, of course, Hezbollah has dramatically increased its strikes into Israeli territory, and I believe there are more troop buildups near the border between Lebanon and Israel. So it's all it's all coming to a head, folks, and we haven't even gotten into Greece, Turkey, and Turkey strikes on Kurdistan and some of this stuff going on. So it's a packed episode. We're going to continue to try to get it to you. But, yeah, Dimitri, what are your thoughts on, you know, the potential Houthi response, you know, the situation in Lebanon and I'm even hearing some reports about this Russian ship stopped and that this may be a, a UAE PSYOP because if there's one country in the Middle East that's totally bucking trend and siding with unipolarity in the global Israeli-American empire, it's the United Arab Emirates. And there's actually, of course, there's the quote-unquote central government in Yemen backed by Saudis in America, which only control empty desert. There's, of course, the Houthis, which control all the relevant parts of Yemen. And then there's the Southern Transition Council, which is actually supported by the United Arab Emirates. I believe they have one of those islands down in the Gulf of Aden. I'm forgetting what it's called, but they're backed by the Emirates, like I said. And they, again, are effectively irrelevant as far as territory goes, but it's an interesting fact. So uh, what are your thoughts on this whole situation? Yeah, I think we shouldn't be surprised that Qatar, the UAE, and even Saudi Arabia have their own interests in the Houthi Yemeni's project, right? Naturally, you've said they have their own government officials. They they still have authority in these regions, although it's very minuscule. But the infrastructure is there for, I suppose, a full um, Saudi takeover if the Houthis disappeared, say, tomorrow. And, you know, went back to their farms and just stopped acting like a military force similar to Hezbollah in Lebanon, right? Just like the Lebanese government kind of exists and it's pro-Western, it doesn't have any authority, right? So the Saudis have their own Lebanese government version in Yemen, um, although, you know, they hold pretty much no authority. And the only reason they, they're still alive is because the Houthis, uh, you know, um, with clemency have allowed them to remain uh, you know, in order to not spread up the war anymore. But yeah, it, it is, you know, it has been reported that Qatar and Saudi Arabia actually have supported these strikes and, you know, logistically assisted the UK, France and the US in, in, you know, in bombing Yemen. So that's already been confirmed. Exactly how much to which extent, we're not too sure. But it, this really does show that uh, Saudi Arabia and some of these richer Arabic, Islamic, Sunni countries are really between a rock and a hard place. On one hand, they need to support their Palestinian brothers in, in Gaza and Palestine and, and you know, Attacking Houthis really isn't fulfilling that goal. On the other hand, they have their own selfish selfish interests in Yemen with the Houthis, and in fact, they can't really set that aside. You know, again, these people are. I just want to say, like, we're dealing with the Islamic world again. There's no, there's no real. They don't have the same morals or ethics as we do, as we Orthodox Christians, for example. So we can't necessarily, you know, 
view them and kind of get them to act at least in a moral setting in the same fashion as we would perhaps. So again, certain backstabbing and things like that should be somewhat expected. But the UAE naturally orchestrating some sort of takeover of a Russian ship, again, possibly. But again, we've seen, like I just want to say, worst case scenario, if a Russian ship was captured, and we're talking about a Russian commercial ship here, you know, carrying oil between the Red Sea, Suez Canal Straits, we do have to consider the fact that Russia has been extremely patient, and Putin has been patient in his conducting of just the Ukraine war, the grain deal, things like that. Russian ships have been hit before. We've seen Ukraine hit various Russian cities, um, terrorist strikes and Russia still hasn't overreacted. So, and even look, even when Russian literal Russian citizens were captured by Hamas in Palestine and taken as hostages, um, was there an overreaction from the Russian Minist uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs? No. Essentially, they took it kind of uh, they took it on the chin and they continued to essentially patiently hold out this 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 big war between multipolarity, you could say, and the unipolar hegemon, which is the United States and its proxies, including Israel. So I think that's kind of the stance we're looking at here. But in terms of, yeah, like Lloyd Austin and Biden and all this breakdown and communication at the cabinet level, I think we can only call this war the war of cocaine, uh, fentanyl, morphine, and adrenochrome, right? Because that's what's running the cabinet at the moment. It's literally painkillers and coke. Right? And probably worse narcotics, which you know they probably obtained from these tunnels, which we keep hearing about. But that's what's running the U.S. Uh, the U.S. military, and that's scary, right? We're not we're got it's scarier than a Bill Clinton or a George Bush because we're literally literally run by madmen who wish to drag us into this Bermuda Triangle of the you know the Gulf of Aden and uh, and this Houthi circle, out of which you know maybe there'll be a few more planes that go missing in this triangle here. Like we'll never know. Again, it's American servicemen putting their lives on the line because of some unknown trade trade you know trade considerations and the fact that you know we say this and you may say oh it's just rhetoric what do you mean that, that all they care about is commerce well look at this story so the strikes only took place what 30 hours ago right and instantly one of the leading european newspapers defense news actually puts out a story uh this this newspaper actually covers uh military spending things like that and they actually cover the french navy defends use of million euro missiles to down houthi drones so the French naval ships are actually firing defensive, uh, you know, the, the the French frigates are actually firing defensive missiles at the Houthi drones, and they have to actually defend themselves. They're saying, look, uh, so these missiles are costing this many, this many millions of dollars. We only shot 15 missiles. How can we justify this to the French public and to the military budget of France? So again, all these people care, these people primarily care about money. It's a very usurious type of mindset that the West, unfortunately, has been infected with. And this won't win in the long term. We've seen this not win in Afghanistan against the Taliban, and it won't win against the Houthis in Yemen. There needs to be, a, again, a more virtuous, a more justified cause. We, I don't believe in anything such as just war. I think that's a little bit foreign to orthodoxy. Orthodoxy views war quite neutrally. I would say neutral negative. And sometimes neutral positive, but it's not. It's never like a very. Um, there's no such thing as I think a justified complete crusade type of scenario. I think very rarely does that take place, right? I think in the lives of saints you can see that. But in this case, from a Western perspective, and even from a Saudi Arabian perspective, I think from an Islamic perspective, there's no justifi justification of actually supporting the U.S. and the U.K. against the Houthis in Yemen. I mean. Protecting Israel is not a just cause. That's just Israel can protect itself if anything. Like it's been receiving funding from from the from America actually from American taxpayers for you know tens of years at this point.
Yeah, there's no cause for condemning the Houthis when you're not equally calling for your government to at least stop supporting Israel. You, they don't even have to condemn them. Just stop actively supporting what's going on in Gaza. Then, you know, you might have the ability to be like, hey, maybe don't target, you know, random ships that are delivering my my goods to, that, that might make a stop in the port of Haifa. Like, look, that's that's what happens when your country literally supports, you know, the one of the most hated Zionist states across you know across the world, you know, there's going to be some some shipping issues. But even Saudi Arabia, uh, this is on antiwar.com, is calling for the U.S. to avoid escalation in Yemen. They're talking to the White House, telling them to show restraint. They don't want them doing these strikes at all. And this is, I mean, just a few years ago, they were begging us for billions of dollars to try to bring the Houthis on Sir Allah to its knees. So it just shows you how much solidarity and how much pressure, I guess, the Islamic people have on their government in this, you know, Gaza issue. Of course, Saudi Arabia is always losing face to Iran on this issue. Iran already more militarily powerful, much larger population. And Saudi Arabia sees that if Iran has the support of the rest of the Muslim world and sees them as an active supporter of Israel, then in a future, and by future I mean maybe right now, broadening hot conflict in the region... Iran will take advantage of that and march into Saudi Arabia and, you know, relaunch the Persian Empire and, you know, take out the House of Saud and have the kingdom no longer be the, I guess, progenitors of the Islamic faith and the guardians of Mecca and whatnot. And this would all come at a time when Jerusalem's status is in question as well. So very eschatological very quickly there. But the fact that Saudi Arabia is very much encouraging the U.S. to show restraint shows you how much this realignment has really manifested. But at the same time, you mentioned, you know, the French strikes and how expensive these are. Now that the U.S. has turned this Operation Prosperity Guardian into an expanded hot military operation, again, they're two separate things, but from the same government, so of course they're going to be linked together. Uh, the Germans have now decided to join Operation Prosperity Guardian. They've sent the uh, they've sent the frigate Hessen, which is a pretty powerful naval ship, to the Red Sea, which is going to be helping the U.S. and Greece and the Seychelles protect you know, Maersk ships, or I guess Maersk has suspended shipping, most other companies have, but whatever ships are still making it through there help protect them, get to ports in Israel, ports in the Mediterranean and whatnot. So Germany has entered the fray. But at the same time, Iran has uh, seized a U.S. tanker in retaliation. And this is a tanker that earlier this, or rather earlier last year, 2023, the U.S. seized from Iran and parked it off the coast of Texas. And then it was carrying oil on a different mission for the U.S. now, and Iran basically stole it back. So Again, big escalations, you know, Iran has said that they support the Houthis, so they're kind of asserting themselves in in this region, in these gulfs outside of the Red Sea, outside of the Persian Gulf, you know, showing that it isn't just the U.S. and these other Western powers that can freely navigate these waters. Of course, we are the countries that actually have our borders here, so they're asserting themselves. So the regional conflict is very much has all the relevant actors involved and on the periphery, physically speaking. So it's it's getting interesting, interesting to say the least. Of course, we got to get into these Chabad tunnels, unless there's anything else in the Red Sea, Persian Gulf, Eastern Mediterranean that we're missing, Dimitri. No, I think it's it's completely, you know, the, the Chabad tunnels actually play into this very, very accurately, because again, we're discussing the same religion, which essentially forced this conflict upon us in the first place. So I think it's, uh, you know, although we may, it may seem like a U.S. domestic issue. I think it's very much has ties to foreign policy, considering just how the media has covered all these conflicts in a very biased fashion, and then how the media, again, switches its attention to the tunnels found in New York and exactly what kind of coverage they received. Yeah, of course, anybody on the internet saw the coverage of 
the secret tunnel supposedly found, not supposedly, we know, the secret tunnel found under uh, the Chabad Lubavitch World Headquarters, the 770 Synagogue and Jewish Cultural Center, which uh, yours truly, Conrad Franz here, I used to live two blocks from <laughs> this building. I would walk by it all the time on my way to the subway, and it was on Eastern Parkway in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. I would see it all the time. And so most of the people in the Hasidim that I lived around were Lubavitchers, were Chabad, and they all flew uh, the gold and purple Moshiach crown flag, and they loved Rebbe Schneerson. There was mur- murals of him everywhere. And over the course of living in New York and living there, the city slowly cracked down on their you know, Yom Kippur celebrations and the chicken murder, because sometimes earlier the chickens were just left in the streets to rot, and now they've forced them to do them in tents and stuff like that and slightly you know, keep that bizarre evil ritual a little bit more private and clean. But what happened was these tunnels were found under this historic synagogue. And we remember, remember, we reported on Javier Malay coming to America, going to Havad Lubavitch World Headquarters. That's this place. Like, Malay was just here. And supposedly these tunnels were constructed, you know, six, seven months ago. The media is saying they were dug by illegal immigrants. But you piece it all together, it basically comes out that the Chabad you know, Jews were paying these illegal immigrants to, and it's, we've gotten all sorts of narratives from Gavin McInnes types, they're gaslighting us, saying it was for them to hide during a future pandemic like COVID so they could worship. The Jews are saying it was to expand the building, and maybe they're going to try to say it was just to avoid some kind of zoning contract law. But again, you know, they've got lawyers for this. They can, they, they could work that kind of stuff out. You know, they're, they're Jews. So, the fact that this was the secret tunnel, and of course we saw the videos of the blood-stained, dirty mattresses, of the high chairs, of these things being pulled out, it starts to paint a much grimmer picture. And of course we all saw the the video of a of a very, uh, I guess a mouse-like creature crawling out of a sewer grate outside of Chabad World Headquarters. This Hasidic guy was, you know, he, he crawled through the grate and people were filming it, and over 12 people were, were arrested and pulled out of these tunnels that had been concealed by these wooden panels inside the main hall of the of the synagogue. And this guy jumps up and he slaps the camera, tries to get it away, and runs off into the night. But I, I just have to say that these images alone going viral everywhere, of course the original like Orthodox Jewish news account that posted about this deleted all of the original posts because of the obvious implications. And I just have to say, you know, Jonathan Greenblatt, the ZOA, all of these... Jewish, you know, organizations dedicated to fighting anti-Semitism, they were all just looking at this, I guarantee you, in, you know, their secret underground layer somewhere. And we're like, man, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, years of progress, you know, we made Schindler's List, we made all these films, and all, it's just down the drain. It's all right down the toilet, because now there's a video with hundreds of millions of views of some Hasidic guy crawling out of the sewer <laughs> in Brooklyn. So it it was a uh, it was a big L for the image I guess of world Jewry because again people we have these right wing you know bap sphere types obfuscating this saying you know all oh, these random Talmud readers are nothing more than another base they might as well be random Muslims reading the Quran you know these aren't the same as the Soros types that are influencing you know Sumner Redstone types that are influencing media that are influencing finance and everything. It's like, but they are. Why is Javier Malay meeting with these people? Why is Beryl Lazar and these people, why are these people considered Putin's personal rabbis? Why does Trump meet with them? Why do they meet with the leaders of the UK, the leaders of the EU, the president of literally every country? Why are they meeting with these Chabad people if they're nothing more than just like, 
you know, some wayward Bedouins and their weird rags and their weird rituals. Sure, there's some Hasidim that are probably pretty low on the relative pole of Jewish power, but again, as was as the point was made in the debate with Fuentes and Vince James against McInnes and the other character, they all reject the resurrection and lordship of Jesus Christ. So in that, they are very much a collective, so it's important to keep that in mind. And sure, while there is no direct evidence that these tunnels had child rape or anything like that occurring in them, we do have, and this is from Kyle Undercover, and again, this whole area is just almost an entirely Hasidic neighborhood with some black tenantry. Like, obviously, all the property is owned by Hasidim, and some of these places are rented out to blacks, and then you have gentrifiers like me slowly moving in there every once in a while. But uh, this is from Kyle Undercover on Twitter. He says, Unexplored Jewish tunnels proven to lead south in the exact direction of 394 Kingston Avenue. Walked on Kingston Avenue all the time myself. This is 900 feet away from the 770 Chabad HQ. And this uh, location was directly linked to a child rape case from two months ago. And there's full court documents linked here. And we'll have those linked below, I guess. But this is this is real stuff. I mean, again, the fact that this all just came out and it was effectively self-reported by the Jewish community because it was a riot. Like, they were they were doing the, oi vey, you know, what are you doing? You're oppressing us, NYPD, you're doing a fascism because they were arresting them, basically preventing them from doing whatever they wanted. There was the famous video of the cop, like, where are you from, Israel? Yeah, yeah, we don't do this in America. You know, I want to I wanna clear the whole shul out. You know, that whole, that video went viral and everyone was was talking about some Italian cop. And yeah, the story kind of took the world by storm. And of course, an even bigger part of the story became the fact that 90% of the establishment conservative commentariat either didn't talk about it at all, despite it, would get, despite it getting millions of impressions and objectively being valuable for anybody posting on Twitter to post about because it would get you followers, it would get you engagement. Or they were like downplaying it like, wow, I love these Jews for making these tunnels. Like, this is amazing. Like, that just came, it just comes out of nowhere with the, like, yes, I support this. Like, couldn't you at least come at it neutrally? So it really betrayed a sort of, uh, a sort of reality of the current conservative establishment and how, you know, while some are willing to criticize, you know, left-wing secular Jewry, you know, these Hasidim and some of these, some of the, these Kabbalistic characters are still, still above board for some people for some reason. Yeah, it's very bizarre. I think um, we did see a lot of conservative voices actually come out and support and kind of try to reinforce the anti-COVID crowd and just say, oh, well, these Orthodox Jews are also part of that crowd. These are members of Hasidic Kabbalah and Kabbalah, even though if they explained exactly what these religions were and what was written in the Talmud, I think a lot of the anti-vax, anti-COVID pandemic crowd would actually turn against them, these conservative commentators. But I do want to mention just the fact that sewers, tunnels, um, you know, what, what exactly was malicious or suspicious about all of this? Well, they, frankly, there was footage released of the actual tunnels, um, probably from the police, as they explored them, what was exactly in these tunnels. And, you know, there was a baby stroller, some weird books, a lot of garbage, lots of really interesting, bizarre stuff that you probably wouldn't have in a religious tunnel, you know, even a few years ago in which you held worship or which led to this uh, mitzvah across the street, which is like a religious Jewish Jewish bathhouse, which they use. Um, you know, a lot of mitzvahs in the past were, were used for very nefarious things, as we've heard from various stories around Europe. Uh, worth doing your research actually into that but you know sewers tunnels i think it led me to at least remember the famous russian imperial case of 1911-1913 the case of Bayless and the killing of course i would say the martyrdom of saint andrew of kiev uh andrusha yushinsky who was killed um and actually you know mysteriously in a ritual murder in right before russia went into world war one 
And his body was found actually in a cave next to an abandoned mine shaft. So very interesting analogy there of the Alapayevsk martyrs and of course the uh, Ganyanayama, all those killings at Yekaterinburg later of the Royal Romanov families. It's always like near mine shafts, near caves. This is where this sort of stuff takes place. But his body was found there. Eventually it led to a very popular, shall we say, anti-Semitic prosecution trial, which where I'm actually translating a text right now one of the best books written in 1914 actually was published on this particular trial because the trial, the outcome was very debatable and contestable, but there were a lot of very interesting experts that came forward, and especially Archimandrites and monks from the Kiev Pechersk Lavra, from the Pechayev Lavra, and even uh, Catholic priests from like Estonia and Lithuania who actually attested to the fact that these ritualistic murders are completely, you know, they are possible. These were expert witnesses, orthodox ones, and including the father of Igor Sikorsky, the inventor of the helicopter. His father was a famous uh, Russian Orthodox psychologist from Kiev, uh, Ivan Sikorsky. He was actually an expert witness who appeared before the court there to justify the fact that, look, it is for, for the uh, prosecution. He actually argued and gave a very, really powerful speech, despite being literally 90 years of age. He says, look, it is possible for these ritual murders to take place. There are people of this mindset, especially from this particular community. Um, very interesting trial worth looking into. And the other story, I think, which should raise some eyebrows, right? We'll post the story from Los Angeles Times in the description on Substack. But there was the death of five children in Krasnoyarsk. A very, uh, essentially, if you look at the map of Russia, it's right in the center of Russian Siberia. Um, a very cold city right next to one of the largest regions. And in 2005, they found five children in a, you know, noticed in a sewer, in a sewer pipe. The children, two of them had completely no, no blood. They were drained completely. All five bodies of the children were burnt and burnt to such an extent that they could not identify them until they had the DNA test them. So completely disfigured. Um, the authorities surprisingly stopped all criminal investigations of, a, of the murder of five children after about 18 months, so one and a half years in, which is very unusual. And the reasons they cited uh, were, was the fact that there were no suspects in the case. So Krasnoyarsk in 2005 to 2007, the Russian police could not find any suspects. Literally, the Russian equivalent of the FBI also could not find any suspects. But five children were killed, two of them drained of blood. This is a very famous case in Russia, which was hushed up very, very quickly. So, but again, found in the sewage, sewage pipes next to a series of caves and tunnels. This is very... This, these things happen. And so let's not be surprised. And when you see the stained mattress, things like that, these are very nefarious things that happen in these places. And even if this tunnel was used for these sort of things years ago, right, maybe even during the COVID pandemic, it still doesn't, you know, it doesn't justify the fact that it wasn't investigated properly. And there weren't, there was no forensic testing. There was no, I mean, it would be, think about it, it would be and it would be considered anti-Semitic for the police to even assert something of that sort. So again, it's not like the police are bad. I'm sure there are people on the inside who control the police force of New York and Brooklyn who actually, you know, prevent them from investigating properly. But in fact, even asserting something of this sort would be considered uh, inappropriate. So uh, it's it's very in this, this whole tunnel story is just very very dark, and I don't want to downplay this at all. This is not. Uh, you know, this the fact that this story came out, as Conrad said, was because of a dispute and essentially the Jewish community, you know, they don't have the grace of God upon them. They don't, you know, they believe in literal Kabbalistic black magic. So let's just not downplay it at all. The Holy Spirit is not present in this, in this uh, shul, in these caves. It's, it's a place of desolation and a place of dark ritual. So the fact that they're fighting amongst themselves and actually revealing to the public, revealing to the police that there are these secret tunnels 
and the infighting in the community. And this causes this great revelation, which is red pilling and revealing to the whole world that, hey, some of these old stories we used to hear about are maybe real and you know somewhat mysterious. Maybe we should look into it. Is just the fact that when you're separated from God, bad things happen. These play, these people are playing with demons. They're playing with the demonic forces, and naturally, this leads to bad outcomes. Because again, demons, you know, hell is a democracy, right? Which means there's a lot of infighting. Not all the demons agree. So there's various parties. It's just like the Knesset. But yeah, very um, very interesting revelation at the beginning of 2024. Now you mentioned the horrible situation in Krasnoyarsk, and that was only a few years after the 1993. Uh, martyrdom of the three new Optina martyrs who were killed in a satanic ritual as well, where there was some kind of blood nonsense involved. So again, this is, listen to that on, I believe it's episode three of Ether Hours, so that's a great episode. But you mentioned the, the their bodies in Krasnoyarsk were in the sewer. We've talked about the Romanovs, allegedly bodies thrown in a mine shaft. We see now these tunnels under the shul. Uh, we have all this other stuff. I mean, these are mole people, man. I mean, like, these are... Like, like these are bizarre mole people. They're building tunnels. They're connecting places. They're transporting things. I've talked about, you know, the hermetic reality of the crossroads and mercantile transportation and everything. And they've taken this to a whole new level. Like they're they're transporting it's whether it's children or whether it's these other whether they're doing black magic rituals under there. It's it's it, like you said, it's a very nefarious situation. And this ties into like ironically enough. These days, you know, we're back to, you know, pre-World War II where the Russian is the number one enemy of the Jew. But, you know, besides that, of course, there is the German, you know, the other landed imperial character on the continent. And we covered the Reich. It was my first, it was that episode I did by myself when we were just getting started on the show. And then we covered it later, the Reichsberger movement, you know, the, the supposed crypto-monarchist violent overthrow of the Reichstag that was being planned by, what was it, like 27,000 Germans, supposedly, and it was centered around Prince Royce, who is this German royal figure who wants to revive the Second German Empire, you know, the, the Second Reich, I guess you, is what they called it. And, and part of their theory was, you know, that, that there were these mole people underground with these children and these mole children that were being trafficked and being abused and being used in rituals. And again, people were like, oh, these are just crazy QAnon-type you know, Germans, they really kind of tried to bring the QAnon J6 type thing into Germany and use their heavy-handed federal office of the Constitution to shut down boomers and these more religious Germans and these perhaps, you know, J-pilled Germans that were, you know, had accepted the reality that we can't, you know, have anything to do with Hitler, so we have to, let's go back to the Second Reich. Uh, you know, these people were shut down totally by this investigation, which again, I'm I'm skeptical of how much Prince Royce and these people were actually seriously planning to use guns to violently overthrow the Reichstag. But it appears they may have been totally spot on about these mole people and about these children and about all this kind of stuff. So there really might be more to that than meets the eye. We're going to be keeping an eye on that. But this comes as part of why that is relevant is because the AFD, which is the political party that most of these Reichsburger people would be voting for, is surging in Germany to the point where if formerly Merkel's, you know, now the lesser known, you know, Christian Democratic Union, the center-right party in Germany, they have a rule across their party to not caucus, to not form coalition with the AFD, but there's a section of that party that is believed that they could break away, form their own smaller party, would have enough support with the AFD's 40% to form a majority coalition and prevent 
the Christian Democratic Union from being involved at all, which would be fantastic because those are already the, that party that would break away is the more traditional right wing element of the CDU. Them joining the AFD would prevent even more moderating influence being brought into that coalition. But of course, amidst all of this, it was like 25 people went to this event spoken at by Martin Sellner, who is sort of the He's from Austria. He's the generation identity leader, kind of the main identitarian activist in Europe right now. And he gave a speech and a few AFD politicians were in attendance. And now that's being used by members of the SPO and the Green Party, who are the ruling coalition right now, to say that, oh, because of this, we can ban the whole party. And they just realize how well the AFD is going to do in some of these state elections and the federal elections and how they're boosting the identitarian right wing bloc in the European Parliament as well, which right now only has about 76 or so members of the European Parliament. It's much smaller than the EPP, which is like the center-right bloc, which has Maloney and some of these other characters. But the ID identitarian bloc is going to have a big expansion now with, I think, the Netherlands main party is in that. Of course, the AFD is in that, and a few other uh, parties across Europe that are doing well are part of that bloc. And in general, Germany, the right is surging, and that's by far the scariest country for the right to be surging in for the globalists, you know, for obvious reasons. So we're, we're going to be keeping a close eye on upcoming German local and federal elections because it's it's looking promising finally for, for the Germans. Of course, Poland was a disappointment. We saw the liberals are back in power. Of course, the law and justice party didn't do themselves any favors, totally aligned with NATO and whatnot. But we were disappointed that Confederatia didn't do better because they were much more identitarian and monarchist. But in the midst of all of this, Finland is, you know, beefing up its NATO allegiances and Turkey has advanced, you know, the Sweden vote to its parliament, although it's still slowballing it, you know. We may not see Sweden fully into NATO for a few months now, but it appears to be happening. And I believe the defense secretary of Sweden or something like that, he said that we need to prepare for a war in Sweden. Like he said this just to the Swedish people, effectively referencing Russia. So it's definitely being seeded in the mind of the Scandinavian people that they may be kind of recruited into this war against Russia. But the other things going on on the continent, in Germany as well, there are these big farmer protests, which, you know, all the German politicians are warning the farmers not to go far right, which is kind of what happened in the Netherlands. The farmers all came out for a right-wing, you know, immigration restrictionist leader in Gert Wilders. And now these farmers seem to be probably much more aligned with the AFD. And these farm protests have spread to places, I mean, Austria and then places like Romania, which are kind of doing the same thing the Polish farmers and truckers did, which was blockade the Ukrainian border crossing, because I'm sure uh, Ukrainian surplus is uh, putting some of these Romanian farmers to ruins. So uh, the fallout and disdain for Ukraine continues to grow, which takes us to Ukraine itself, which not as hot as the Middle East this week, but there are still some developments. Yeah, absolutely. I think in terms of Russian troops actually pushing, still trying to constrict Avdiivka, the Ukrainians are actually putting up an intense resistance. Right before the new year, we actually received footage. We didn't report on this earlier, in fact, because it was such a small story, but we did actually witness Zelensky appear on the outskirts of Avdiivka itself. So the man has, you know, the man has gonads, he has... He's is a bit of a, he's a little bit ruthless in, in in many ways. Those analogies to the Joker from Batman, they really he, he is a clown. He's a comedian, and he likes to appear in the front lines because he knows there is some sort of um, shall we say like Talmudic immunity on his on his head. Like he for some reason Russia doesn't want to take this guy out for whatever you know for whatever reason. Unlike 
Putin, who simply cannot appear on the front lines you know, on, under any means, or even Patriot Kirill, for example. These are all legitimate targets. Uh, but Zelensky apparently isn't. So he's appeared at Avdivka, and Avdivka is still holding strong, in fact, on free ends on the on the southwestern end. It's holding the Russians back on the northeastern end. It's just holding the outskirts of Avdivka proper and the railroad leading out of the city, which essentially connects Avdivka to the rest of the uh, to the rest of mainland Ukrainian held territory, and as well as just in the southeastern point, actually Ukrainians are holding it back. We are we are hearing Russian troops at least, you know, building up a, a certain portion of resistance on the outskirts of Kharkov, so near Belgorod, the you know, um, the long-suffering Belgorod, which received missile strikes uh, just on New Year's Eve, and many Russian civilians were killed. A lot of them are still hospitalized there, so a great tragedy and essentially a terrorist attack upon literal civilian targets which we reported on earlier but so belgorod being that sister city to Kharkov, we can definitely say whenever Kharkov is the next target in the north uh, you know, northeast of ukraine russia will be defending its it's you know, essentially 50 kilometers away the city of belgorod and russia will be essentially probably pursuing a surround type tactic when things escalate but at the moment like we we have seen essentially a stalemate on the on that end but you know where one particular area where a stalemate hasn't taken place and this was reinforced we've, almost, we've seen almost two weeks of no active videos of persecutions again a ukrainian cctv footage comes out of a ukrainian church in uh center western ukraine actually being raided by again uh ukrainian military and members of this you know, you know of the fake schismatic Zelensky church which is incredibly disturbing it's it's really sad on like a saturday evening seeing parishioners actually getting dragged out of church from from a matins or a vespers service and essentially the church being taken over the they're probably grabbing the auntie mince as well off the altar table i mean as sacrilegious as that sounds this is exactly what's happening in these particular places these people are very skilled they're skilled schismatics i don't know what else to say like skilled blasphemers and the other thing was naturally we saw footage of of, and then this kind of went viral. We did post it on Telegram and on Twitter. There was footage of a Ukrainian uh, schismatic priest attempting to cross himself. And very visibly, it wasn't, I mean, again, you could argue it was because of physical constriction, but he was trying to cross himself and he really couldn't do it. In fact, outside of a church, which him and his men, and by men, I mean literal soldiers, just captured the day before. And he's, you know, he's he's, he's praying with, along, alongside his parishioners. He's trying to cross himself and he can't. His hand doesn't lift up. This is what we hear about from you know, St. Sarah in front of Sarov stories and uh, other stories of lives of St. St. John of Kronstadt, St. Theophon the Recluse. You know, demons prevent you from saying your prayers, from crossing yourselves. This is a, a, a real sign of possession. I don't know what else to say, but this is what happens when you, you step away from Christ is that, uh, you know, they just, they just interfere with your life physically as well as mentally. So really unfortunate footage, but uh, yeah, in terms of uh, the Diocesan control, the Russian Orthodox Church has in fact, granted a temporary diocese to, you know, as we know, the Kherson Oblast is divided into two. So the Bishop of Kherson is actually in Kherson, but he has no ability to govern the Russian Orthodox Church and his priests on the Russian side of the Dnieper River. And so the Russian Orthodox Church, um, the, you know, the Synod came together or those members who could make it, and they essentially put forward the decision. I think it was probably Patriarch Kirill, his personal decision to create a temporary diocesan control in the Russian on the Russian side of the Dnieper and Kherson Oblast. So at least the Russian priest will have some sort of uh, governing authority at this point, some administrative assist assistance, and also the priests can actually go to confession and actually confess their sins and the deacons as well. So it's you know it does it does assist in that having that sort of uh, 
hierarchical oversight. So it's positive developments. And, you know, those sort of things, Conrad, they do move us, move us to think if the Russian church is setting up alternative diocesan control of these particular areas, maybe they are anticipating, because we know the Russian military and Vladimir Putin don't always report their future plans to the Russian Orthodox Church. Maybe the church is anticipating some sort of temporary truce or some sort of uh, armistice, you know, some some sort of agreement to, for peace. And in fact, they're saying, look, if this takes place, we're going to need temporary uh, control, which kind of goes out of the ordinary, at least for the church. Yeah, it's a horrible thing to see. I saw the video in, I think it was Viritsa, where the priests and the parishioners were dragged out later at night. And it was it's terrible to see. So again, keep the Ukrainian Orthodox Church in your prayers. But uh, to wrap up in Ukraine, some some sad news. We've talked about him on the show before. It appears that, as reported on the Tucker Carlson Network show by his father, Gonzalo Lira Sr., Gonzalo Lira Jr., the American-Chilean commentator. Again, I knew Gonzalo Lira, Coach Red Pill, before anyone was talking about anything to do in Ukraine. He was a figure within, you know, right-wing circles, blood sports, you know, this, the manosphere, these kinds of communities. And he is now apparently dead. Apparently he died from, I guess, his illnesses in a Ukrainian prison at the age of 55. So a real tragedy. I remember when he attempted to flee, I believe, to the Czech or Hungarian border. And he, I guess, was unsuccessful and was captured. And we all remember the weird transsexual uh, Mr. Sarah Ashton Cirillo, whatever that cross-dressing freak's name was, talking about gleefully about how Gonzalo Lira will be tortured in prison and all this horrible stuff. So the American government has allowed one of its citizens to effectively die at the hands of its puppet regime. And I guess we'll see if they say anything, but I'm skeptical. Yeah, I think it's definitely uh, Mr. Lira was a victim of Ukrainian torture. Just like many, many of those protesters in 2014, 2015 in Odessa and other places, we have to understand the SBU is probably one of the most notorious and you know, its its ancestors, its sort of forefathers are definitely, we're talking about CIA and the most ruthless Mossad agents who have actually built this organization up. And also, like, it has the most tainted ancestry of any foreign intelligence agency in the world, I think. I think we have a bit of Mossad. Definitely the Ukrainian military does have very strong ties to that, that of the Israeli military. We've heard Zelensky actually allow Israeli police officers into Ukraine before in order to protect, you know, that particular Hasidic pilgrimage that was taking place. It's a very bizarre sort of behavior, naturally. So we do know the security services interact with one another. And again, CIA have been in Ukraine for literally 10 years at this point, if not more. On the other hand, there is that KGB ancestry as well, right? So we have to keep that in mind. And, you know, Ukraine was one of the places where the Red Terror and those sort of events, the Cheka, OGPU, and Kovada, they really dealt in massive blood orthodoxy and even just uh, the white Russian Christian population of the Ukrainian region. We've, you know, I don't want to just say Holodomor, like sort of throw it out like that PR word that it is, but a lot of Christians were killed in those particular areas. And these agencies, unfortunately in Ukraine, I don't think it received the same sort of enlightenment as the FSB maybe did with you know, proper leadership. FSB really transitioned into something at least that attempts to fight for positive forces and has changed itself internally but the SBU no I think they've continued their really harsh prosecution as well as even persecution of and we've seen this in the churches right so their 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 actual reaction to church hierarchs and how they've raided churches and raided um, bishops things like that and now of course Gonzalo Lira dying within one of their cells is not surprising at all I think as sad as it is it's like kind of kind of expected that you know they would kill a famous journalist 
very much in the open, maybe sending a message of sorts. These people are very dangerous. And I mean, people like myself and Conrad and any of the, you know, Jay Dyer, maybe Father John Whiteford, people who actually speak out openly against against the persecution that things are taking place in Ukraine, we would not be allowed to actually go to that state. It is, inc it is incredibly dangerous. We have to just keep in mind, this is not a democracy. It's not some sort of liberal haven. In fact, you know, Julian Assange has shown that even Western countries aren't really safe at this point. But Ukraine is definitely the place where all these agencies act with complete impunity, un unmanaged. There's no auditing going on. People just die, disappear, or are jailed, and then they die from various illnesses they receive. So it's it's quite horrible, I think. And it does paint, you know, paint a very accurate picture of what's happening in that, at the moment, very cursed land and very desolate region. Yeah, I think to move away to an even more right now, I don't know about desolate, but seemingly cursed region, we're hearing... I was talking to Tristan Haggard about the Ecuador Civil War. Again, we're not experts on South American politics here, but Ecuador has descended into a sort of low-grade insurgent civil war conflict where these gangs, this assortment of cartel-affiliated, you know, certain cartels groups are warring with each other but are also both fighting the government, and they took over TV stations, they took over all sorts of places, universities took hostages, were executing guards and whatnot. And the president declared war, like literal war. He sent the army out. They were in the streets doing all this sort of stuff. And, well, according to Tristan Haggard, there's even a kind of Santa Muerte, demonic, satanic element in these cartels that have seeped down in from the influence of the Mexican cartels, the Mexican mafia, which now run all of the drug trade in South America. They have kind of amassed this influence and sort of made a move on what they perceived as a weaker government. But uh, Naboa, the president of Ecuador has a, I'm told at least, has the opportunity to go really heavy-handed and become the noob, I guess, Bukele of South America and become very popular because he, the last two presidents were U.S. puppets and he himself has a more independent support base and is capable of perhaps forging a more, you know, authoritarian, low-crime, somewhat conservative path forward for Ecuador. So that's our Civil War report on Ecuador, unless you have any comments, Dimitri, but I wanted to talk about the case against Israel in the International Court of Justice, not so much because we love the International Court of Justice, but because, like we just said, we talked about the atrocities Ukraine has been perpetrating for, for months now, and of course Russia is the one for supposedly kidnapping children that gets taken to the International Court of Justice, and that prevented Putin from supposedly being able to travel to the BRICS summit in South Africa. But South Africa now is the you know BRICS country that has taken uh, Israel to the International Court of Justice right now. So, uh, what's the what's the take here? What is the, how does this develop? How is this development going to affect kind of the broader geostrategic situation? I think it's somewhat of a positive development, considering that Israel actually elected five, um, you know, five to six counselors and attorneys representing itself in this court, which means it does recognize the jurisdiction of the court to some regard, to some extent. And also, just looking at the argumentation, I think if anybody wants to follow this story. We all know what South Africa and what the what the actual applicants to the court will be accusing Israel of, right? But what we what we will be seeing here, I think, is just Israel defending itself very um it in a very interesting fashion. So on one hand, I've I've primarily watched the Israeli side of the arguments, and they've actually presented some, uh, you know, some very obvious virtue signaling plots to this particular to this particular scenario they've stated that they wanted they have the right to self-defense naturally that the october 7th they made a very clear emphasis on october 7th and the fact that 
the the strikes against the against the Israeli kibbutzes has forced the Israeli military to act, you know, in the strongest fashion and essentially institute a counter-terrorist operation of like the the largest proportions all over Gaza, and that was essentially what not justified but somewhat at least alleviated the guilt and intent of genocide. They've said there is no intent of actual genocidal action here. Um, you know, you can interpret it as a genocide if you want, but they think genocide the actual definition of the word is a little bit broad in the ICJ sense. You know, there was a few disputes about what exactly does genocide mean. And the, you know, uh, looking at the definition myself, uh, it is quite broad, but I think the word can be applied very broadly as well. So in fact, genocide, you know, I think is a real thing. And what Israel is doing, it really meets the criteria, but was there any intent? Israel is arguing that no, there wasn't. It's also stating that yes, we were actually allowing humanitarian aid to enter into Palestine uh, and Gaza, in fact, this, this entire time, and they're presenting evidence against that. But mostly the arguments, actually, of, it, of the Israeli side and the ICJ are hinging on this. October 7th was so bad that we needed this extraordinary action, and we needed to destroy the terrorist organization of Hamas, as they're calling it, with, with complete impunity and almost, you know, with, with direct action by the military, things like that. So um, I think the ICJ, look, the ICC, ICJ, we mentioned it in our wrap-up of 2023 episode that these particular courts, uh, they're not the most legitimate authorities, right? Look, at the Hague, they're looking for Igor Strelkov. They want to arrest people like Putin, like Matushka Marie Lvova Belova, the Commissioner for Children's Rights in Russia. Meanwhile, you know, children are going missing in tunnels and things like that. But nevertheless, these people, they're issuing warrants for people completely, essentially innocent of any crimes. They want to investigate Russian, you know, essentially any Russian uh, politician who manages to get captured in, 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 into their claws. A lot of very really weird warrants coming out of these particular courts, the ICC and the ICJ. So how much can we Christians view this particular process as something authoritative? I'm not too sure, but at least on a, in a legal sense, at least in the media and maybe in the eyes of the international community, it will reveal the fact that Israel is in fact at fault, legally speaking. And will Israel accept the orders and decisions of this court? Again, even if the, these procedures, right, they're quite, this, this is not like a proper civil court that, or like a district court in the US where it may take months and years to actually get this process going. No, the decision, you know, of the judges, uh, of the panel of judges will come out within, I think, five to six weeks. So we're already, you know, one or two weeks into it, and it's gonna get, uh, it's gonna come out very quickly. I think by early March, by Great Lent, we'll have the decision of the ICJ in relation to Israel, which, uh, which again, I think Israel will appeal. So we know how these legal processes work. Unfortunately, the legal field is very much infested by these sort of people who just push things out. And you know, we've seen this in the Epstein case, right? With Alan Dershowitz, the most famous, and you can say probably the best. Uh, American defense attorney actually working for one of the most obvious and greatest pedophile child trafficker in, in America, right? It's and, and naturally we have owners of pornographic websites as well. The the ordained rabbi running all these porn like and he's also a defense attorney. It's just we are seeing this very interesting pattern here where the legal profession really isn't a battleground on which I think Christians could actually win because again, the entire the entire system is corrupt from the inside, jurisprudence works for these sort of people and the icj as valiant as south africa is actually bringing israel to court and i mean that's very commendable i'm not saying it's a waste of time but again what outcomes will we see i don't think we'll see anything in fact netanyahu i think the only thing he cares about is the supreme court of israel actually condemning him not some international court unfortunately so i think he's planning on actually winning this conflict maybe winning back the trust of his people rather than what happens somewhere in south africa but nevertheless israel is represented and 
you know, we'll look forward to a decision maybe in early March and uh, we'll see what takes place. Yeah, as far as international law goes, the ICC, the ICC, I mean, the idea of international law, certainly the idea of international criminal law is already fairly dubious to begin with, I think. I mean, there's no, you know, there nations and their law, whether it's English common law or like the French, you know, loyal legal tradition in these other places, it all kind of comes out of a civilizational history. There's no international civilizational history. It's this sort of enlightenment, liberal internationalist idea of, you know, very with ideas of racism and whatnot baked into the cake. I mean, like, you're never going to see the ICC or the ICJ prosecute South Africa for perpetuating white genocide, which, again, uh, there's it's an interesting dynamic. I think some of the more radical elements within the coalition of leftist communist groups in South Africa are actually backed by the United States, like the EFF, Julius Malema, the actual kill the Boer people. Those are, you know, MI6, Western operations, influencing the, for better or for worse, you know, communist in more independent ANC, which I have no love for the ANC, but, you know, it's an African country. They're going to be Africans. But as far as the ICC and the ICJ go, their targets, like you said, are always, with the exception of South Africa bringing this forward, it kind of has civil rights clout as a black former apartheid country. It's always against Russia and Vladimir Putin for the children thing. It's always against China for the Uyghurs and whatnot, despite the fact that China is very much trying to act as a force for peace, genuinely speaking. Like, they're too afraid to even take righteous action in some cases. And we see possibly the end of the Myanmar Civil War recently with uh, China mediating talks between the Junta and the Three Brotherhood Alliance, which we've talked about on the show in the past, which is effectively the largest rebel group that I think receives support from the West. Of course, there's some Islamic groups in the uh, northwest of the country that give them grief, but... This is one of the biggest groups fighting the junta, and it appears there's a ceasefire. So China is trying to maintain the junta in power and not allow Myanmar to fall to becoming a Western-backed puppet like it had been before the junta pulled the coup and took over. So that's an interesting, I guess, uh, victory for Chinese influence in the region. And this comes amidst Taiwan's elections right across the straits on, you know, what America recognizes as Chinese territory, Taiwan, in about they got about 40% of the vote and not that many people participated in the vote so this character who's very pro Taiwan independence as opposed to the more pro status quo Kuomintang and then the other centrist party he's now the president of Taiwan and they're very pro independence pro liberal democracy you know they take influence from the liberal Hong Kong independence movement that was protesting against the Chinese security law a few years back people remember all of that when that went down the umbrella protests and whatnot but as far as Taiwan's current trajectory goes, China has made it clear that they're not happy about this and that any kind of assertion of Taiwanese independence is wrong. And I believe they've increased certain tariffs because, again, China and Taiwan are some of each other's largest trading partners still. I mean, Taiwan imports most of its stuff from mainland China, sends most of its stuff back to mainland China exporting as well. So they have the ability to have strong influence on the Taiwanese economy. But this this comes amidst Chinese you know, aggression in the sea and the air. They've flown planes over. They've done military exercises around Taiwan and have made it very clear. And Xi made it clear in his, like, New Year's address that Taiwan will be fully reintegrated and normalized as part of the People's Republic of China in the very near future. And as far as the possibility of that happening politically and totally nonviolently, we've talked about the, that possibility in the past, how it's very likely that took a bit of a step back with this election, as far as I can tell. Yeah, absolutely. I think if, you know, if if in Taiwan, 
it, it was a strong coming out of forces which actually wanted unity with China. Um, then I think, and with minimal resistance, if, if that actually came out of this election, then we, we would probably see maybe something to take place in 2024. But at this point, it'll most likely be delayed. And China, like people view China, you know, due to, I, th I think mostly mass media and the fact that the economy is actually rising in the 21st century as this particular dangerous force in Asia, as this big, you know, Chinese tiger or something or a dragon or who, who knows what it is, right? In, in, in the year of the dragon at the moment. But but China, historically, we have to just keep in mind, it's its foreign policy is 95% defensive. I don't think China has pretty much invaded almost any of its allies, especially Ch so China's greater, one of its greatest uh, you know, neighbors, Russia in the north. Russia, China has never, ever had a war with Russia in terms of has never invaded its territory, never had any conflict whatsoever, which is completely you know the opposite of what we see say in European history, in the Middle Eastern history, where there's constant warfare. China is this massive... You know, I guess Confucius civilization, which is built on on peace and um, and it has its own philosophy, which a lot of I think a lot of countries really miss out on. You can imagine what a future Christian China would look like for the region. I mean, it would be a complete enlightening experience. I think so. We look forward towards that particular you know that particular dimension of it. We've spoken about you know North Korea actually positioning itself very strongly against South Korea. And if China starts doing that towards Taiwan, it will be a step out of the ordinary. But I think China will only do that if if the opportunity presents itself and if the U.S. is really spread thin amongst all of these uh, different avenues around the world. If the U.S. has to intervene in Ecuador or uh, the Essequibo region, the Red Sea, Ukraine, all these places, including Israel, again, in the Mediterranean. If China sees an opening, I'm not leaving out of, you know, it is there is a possibility that they will act upon Taiwan, but I think most likely this conflict will be delayed until maybe early next year. Well, it's true that they see these strikes on Yemen or these possible incursions into the Caribbean and Haiti or into South America or into Africa to help, you know, the French colonial influence there, whatever it is. Russia saw that and immediately launched Kinjal hypersonics and kind of escalated the missile warfare. You know, like you said before, hit Kharkov, hit Kiev, like we had mentioned earlier. So Everybody is watching how spread thin the homosexual American empire is spread around the world, in the Middle East, in Europe, in South America, in Asia, protecting Taiwanese interests. So, of course, American interests in Taiwan is what it is. But this is, this is a wide swath of, of, of spheres to be covering and having dominion over. So everybody is waiting and watching for it to crack and helping push on it a little bit, of course. But... Uh, you mentioned how China, like, like you said, is going to have to probably wait a little bit on their diplomatic moves on Taiwan. The same can't be said for uh, talks between the Koreas. And just very recently, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, he said at a year-end meeting of his ruling party, he said that, they, that he ordered a decisive policy change in relations to the South, instructing the military to be prepared to pacify and occupy the South in the event of a crisis. So Kim Jong-un and the Juche boys are in full preparation for Korean integration, and it will not be into the Western system. So, you know, the Korean War is back. So we're, it's just another, look, world war is now. Is anybody disputing this at this point? You know, if you're a real world war now warrior at this point, you know, you, you knew this was true, but, you know, send the show around, you know, listen to the old episodes, go back and give those a listen, because I can assure you, we were right on the money. But unless you have anything else in Asia, Dimitri, the Korea stuff is, is very interesting, of course, as I thought was the Myanmar item, but we're going to shift stateside and talk about a brewing, you know, constitutional crisis, not just 
going on with the Trump election and the upcoming Iowa caucus. But as my favorite wheelchair-bound governor, Greg Abbott, here in Texas himself, finally you know, grows a spine. I don't know if that's offensive because he's paralyzed, but, you know, grows a spine and enforces the border and is going to start arresting illegal immigrants and has even prevented federal border patrol from accessing this certain section of the border that is a hotspot for illegal immigration. So taking these borders into Texas's hands. So do you have any uh, anything to say on the East or anything else? Are you ready to go stateside? Yeah, I think stateside is appropriate. Like what we're seeing right now is a constitutional jurisdictional crisis in the U.S. And you know, Greg Abbott actually taking matters into his own hands, which I completely support. We see the U.S. actually, you know, just recall the falling the the disassembly of the Soviet Union. All these various states and former members of the USSR were completely endorsed by America to you know seek their own independence. But within the U.S. itself, states cannot seek, of course, independent action. It's seen as a crisis, a point of like. Like, you know, contention against the whole, against the unitarian rule of uh, of Washington D.C. So again, it's this hypocrisy that we see from, uh, you know, b- between American foreign policy and diplomacy from the '90s until now, and even a state like Texas, which is directly impacted by all these hundreds, at this point, hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants coming over the border, and these aren't just families. People need to keep in mind it's not just about well. But Christ, Joseph, and Mary, they could escape into Egypt during the persecution of Herod. No, this isn't the same. This is not just families coming over the border. And frankly, Egypt was, Egypt and the Levant of Herod were essentially the same state. They simply crossed, uh, you know, essentially without a visa, shall we say, into Egypt because it was all part of the Roman Empire at the time under Augustus. So let's not get it twisted too far. But uh, what we're seeing what are here... These, are these open borders activists advocating for the return oh, of yeah. the Roman Empire? Like, well, I think well, we can get behind yeah. that. They wouldn't, they wouldn't like some other elements of that. But <laughs> Absolutely not. And I look, what we're seeing here is mostly young men seeking work. And in fact, you know, maybe this is being promoted by various capitalists in the US and other interests. But whatever the reason, they shouldn't be crossing the border without actual checks without background checks, uh, you know, children's checks. You can't even get jobs in certain Western countries without checks, uh, you know, without criminal background checks. And we don't know anything about these people. They're not even from Mexico. If they were refugees, you know, this, we're talking about international legal standards. Refugees. Most of them are from Venezuela and Ecuador well, right. and Africa. So, so. <laughs> so the arguments are completely insane. It's similar to um, Afghanistanis who, you know, essentially run, and no offense, I mean, these people from Afghanistan, refugees coming out of, the, out of there for two decades at this point, you know, ever since, uh, until Joe Biden has pulled out the troops, essentially. Afghanistani refugees going to Europe. Refugees, by international law, need to stop in the nearest, safest country. The fact that they're going through Iran and places like this and claiming that Iran isn't a safe country is a little bit racist, if anything. Like, Iran is a completely functional state. You can stay there, right, in a refugee camp or Turkey or, I mean, Iraq, probably not. But even Azerbaijan, for example, you don't need to go to the country with the best welfare system. That isn't part of being a refugee. So I just want to keep this in mind. If, in fact, people think we're against immigrations or we're against refugees, no, we understand, you know, refugees from Russia, where, did, where was the first places they went after the revolution? Manchuria, China, adjacent countries, Serbia, Bulgaria. Read the lives of saints. Read St. John of Shanghai, St. Theophan, the new recluse, the early Rokor church. Where did all of yeah, those Yeah, I mean, St. John of Shanghai was in California by way of Shanghai. That's right. You know? <laughs> they stopped in the nearest countries because they were legitimate. I mean, I'm not saying that these 
South Americans, not legitimate refugees, but the the image of refugees, the ideas that they're I'm saying that very different. <laughs> yes, potentially, but I'm just giving them a bit of I'm just giving them a bit of breathing room here. I'm not just suffocating them. <laughs> the whole issue. But we are, what we're seeing here well, is of, completely. And I mean, the Feds yeah. definitely. Uh, the Feds are doing everything they can to not to interrupt you, but they they're doing everything they can to uh, to make sure Texas doesn't stop this from happening. And this is. In an overnight DOJ filing, the feds confirmed that the Texas National Guard has deployed armed soldiers and vehicles to block federal government from accessing the river in Eagle Pass, Texas, and informed them that no Border Patrol agents will be allowed to enter Shelby Park in any operational capacity. This from Intel Slava Z. This is a significant escalation by Texas after the feds fought to remove Texas water barriers and razor wire, and the DOJ is suing Texas over its new border security law. This is potentially setting up to be the biggest state versus federal fight in a very long time. And I agree. And of course, it's a popular issue, of course. It'll only increase Abbott's popularity. And Abbott at this point sees the election looming and is, I think, growing a little bit more of a spine to actually take this on. I mean, this has been, I mean, he's declared the emergency at the border, I think, well over a year ago at this point. Everyone has been waiting for him to actually confront the feds and confront the Biden regime and see if they're willing to put the boot on the neck over illegal immigration or if they'll back off. Because we want to see, like, Everybody is willing to see the Texas state government go this far, and he would definitely not lose political support. He himself is just afraid of the consequences. And sure, it's uncharted territory. It takes a strong man to do it. And, you know, Greg Abbott, again, he's literally wheelchair-bound. It might not be—he might not be the man for the job, but he sees Trump on the horizon and knows that if he can keep this fight going, you know, maybe win a few court battles. He's got a brave attorney general in Ken Paxton who Trump supports and would be an amazing— a nationwide attorney general of Trump is to become president. He he has him, so maybe he sees Trump on the horizon and thinks he can win a lot of political points now that Trump is boosting and Biden may be afraid to uh, go to bat for illegal immigrants so hard during an election year because that is a very unpopular issue. Yeah, I think, look, um, Mr. Abbott, he's definitely a politician through and through, but I think he can see Gandalf, the writers of Rohan and Eomer on the horizon, ready to lift the Uruk High siege of Helm's Deep, right? He sees Trump and like the Patriot, the Patriots actually in in control, maybe in a few months' time. He just needs to hold Texas and actually keep it together. Perhaps the actual border will be built, considering, imagine the argumentation Trump could use when he comes to power. He can say, look, we spent literally 100 plus, north of 100 billion US dollars in Ukraine, and we cannot spend, say, 15, 20 billion on our own border in the South. Considering how much, how many criminals, essentially, how many cartels are you know, utilizing these particular routes in order to get into the U.S. and the fentanyl crisis, things like that, which took out um, the late George Floyd, people like that. It's just, it's it's a tragedy, right, on the horizon for for the American people, domestically speaking, and it needs to be dealt with. It's not about a matter of protectionist foreign policy. It's a matter of actually protecting the American people. We've spoken about this. Uh, crisis. Even when, remember, the Chinese representatives actually uh, visited San Francisco, one of the issues Joe Biden spoke to them about was the fentanyl crisis and the issue of me these Mexican drug houses using Chinese ingredients to make fentanyl, sending it over the border. Again, it's like, a, you know, this is a real thing even the Joe Biden administration admits. So we just have to keep that in mind. Like, this is a, a proper crisis in the U.S. It's more important than whatever's happening in the Middle East, right? As 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 bad as the genocide of the Palestinians is, the U.S., the, it should be the onus should be on the Islamic countries to prevent Israel from doing so. Israel does not need American protection under any circumstances. I mean, if anything, this is a sort of a cooperating with the genocidal, um, I would say, 
racist state of Israel because they're, they're genuinely in their Talmudic religion. They are incredibly racist, seeing everybody else's goyims, cattle, things like that. So this is like general, genuine racism and not really like the trope that we see very often in ma in media. But at the moment, yeah, I think it's not racist to say that we don't want mass immigration in the US. We don't want hundreds and thousands of refugees coming over the border un unchecked um, with no, no safety, no healthcare, no ability to actually integrate and assimilate into American society. And again, the arguments that they're mostly Catholic, things like that, these don't really work because the really hardworking Christian Catholic South Americans, they remain in South America. They remain in places like Mexico. They work hard and they rebuild their lives. They don't skip countries on their journey towards the one place where they want to be, this El Dorado. This is not how refugee, you know, this is not how refugee laws work. We've spoken about international law. This is not what being a refugee means, getting to the best country on the on the horizon, stopping at the nearest, safest place and seeking refuge. No, it's the institutionalized great replacement. I mean, it's a whole system. All the routes are mapped out. You know, the NGOs, whether they're Jewish or Catholic, and those are the two biggest perpetrators. You know, you don't really see any Orthodox Christian NGOs facilitating, you know, the great replacement over the border of illegal immigration. But there's an unfortunate amount of Catholic groups and a very large amount of Jewish groups that are involved in this. I mean, you'll see Stars of David on the sides of some of these buses taking people, whether it's from, you know, Panama up to the Mexican border or, you know, Mexico up to the U.S. border or some of these places. It's a whole big operation. And it probably, you know, like we said, they say the illegal immigrants dug the Chabad tunnels and it probably goes even deeper than that. So the connection is there. but. I mean, this is, of course, a silver platter issue for Donald Trump in the election as the Iowa caucus approaches. January 15th, Monday, will be when the first votes are cast in the 2024 presidential election. That's right. Iowa will be deciding which Republican they want to give their votes to in this primary. Trump is far and away. He has over 50% support. I think it's even higher than that, maybe even over 70% in Iowa. So he's going to totally sweep it. And then following that is New Hampshire a few days later. and. These two states are really where it kind of is realized who never had any support to begin with. And of course, we're going to see Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley really lose a lot of support. And Vivek Ramaswamy has talked about this. Chris Christie was caught on a hot mic talking about this, how in many ways it seems the plan could be uh, DeSantis drops out and throws in support for Haley to try to rally support behind him because she's been polling higher than he is. She's got the big donor support. The establishment, I think, even wants Haley more than they want Joe Biden second term. So if it wasn't for the huge Trump behemoth, you know, preventing her from ever getting even close to the White House, you know, she could be the person. But as Chris Christie said on the hot mic behind backstage, he said she's going to get smoked and that you and I both know she's not up to this. That's what he said. And apparently DeSantis called him petrified about his imminent loss in Iowa. Despite the fact that DeSantis visited every single county in Iowa, all 99 counties, some of those probably have like a few hundred people. And he's probably going to not even come second. Like, maybe he comes second, but, like, there's some people even say that Vivek could surprise us and do just as well as DeSantis. So it's uh, it's very interesting. Of course, we're going to probably see the race totally collapse to just Trump. And, of course, smarter characters like Abbott and other people around the country endorse Trump. But a few people have had to rescind their DeSantis endorsements because they really thought that the party had moved on and was ready to go back to Tea Party tier policy wonk nonsense. But, no, it's, you know... It's the Trump and Reich or nothing at this point. And sure, after this election cycle, I agree, America is going to be a very different place. And, you know, maybe this is the last election. That's the kind of things people say. But again, the border issue is only going to help boost Trump. And it'll help boost him in the general very much so, of course, because, and like I said, 
Abbott might see that and be like, hmm, Joe Biden may not want to take the political hits of sending troops in on Texas state troopers that are arresting illegal immigrants, which would be a really bad look. But, you know, Trump may be advising him on this. It's a it's an interesting situation. But yeah, we're uh, we're watching it closely. And, you know, I'll be follow us on social media, on Telegram and on Twitter, World War Now underscore. I'm at Gnome Rad. Follow us on Telegram, World War Now Telly, because we'll be, you know, posting about this stuff live as it happens. But I think we have to move on to a brief note on Greece and Turkey. Of course, Turkey is conducting pretty massive strikes on the Kurds in, you know, its eastern regions and even parts of Syria just across Kurdistan, which again is the largest kind of ethnic state that is not really recognized by anybody. So it's uh, Kurdistan is stems from Turkey across Syria into Iraq and even into Iran. The Kurdistan region of Iran is where ISIS-K actually you know, operates when it does come to Iran from Afghanistan, and it's where uh, that whole fake hijab woman that got killed by the morality police protest PSYOP started. It was a Kurdish woman. That's where a lot of the U.S. color revolution stuff in Iran comes from. But yeah, Turkey was striking the Kurds, and amidst all of this, Greece you know, has decided that they're drafting laws to legalize gay marriage. We talked about this before, but it seems that that is moving forward. You know, Mitsotakis, you know, despite him being from the quote-unquote, you know, more right-wing government in Greece, the center-right party, of course, he's totally caving on these issues, total slave to the European Union. But, I mean, there's going to be some protests, you know, there's some Greeks taking to the streets. But at the end of the day, this is the same thing we talked about with Georgia. Georgia has been much more active in mobilizing against homosexuality. And because of that, they, you know, are now probably going to be able to maybe resist entering the European Union from a moral perspective, like prevent their government from ever getting into this place to begin with. But, you know, as Elder Ephraim of Arizona, he said, he said that Greece has turned its back on Christ and is sleeping in its own muck. So again, people like to criticize, Greek people like to get mad at anybody that criticizes Greece that isn't Greek. And I love Greece. I want Greece to be the most amazing Orthodox nation it could be. I agree. You know, Constantinople is first among equals. None of us here deny this. But with all the ecumenism and the stuff in Ukraine and now this nonsense, like it's really hard to be to be a real Byzantine enthusiast like I would like to be. So we're of course praying for Greece. We're hoping that this can be turned around. And maybe if there is mass mobilization, they might reconsider. Yeah, I mean, this is the real struggle of smaller Orthodox countries around the world, Georgia, Bulgaria, Serbia, Greece, I mean, look, well, and even Romania, they have to struggle against this current, this push and pull between, I guess, these two poles, right? The the multipolar world, so to speak, and then the unipolar hegemonic world, which there a lot of them are directly adjacent to and allies of, right? Like Greece, for example, with, with uh, Prime Minister Kyriakos, I mean... Look, what can I say? This is this is obviously we're seeing the entree of this proposition that he came. Actually, the Prime Minister of Greece came onto the television. He openly said that look, uh, Greek males won't be able to use surrogate mothers. So he actually openly said that that's not an option. It's like, well, thank you know, praise the Lord that we haven't reached complete degeneracy. But he's saying, look, uh, same-sex marriage needs to be somehow uh, you know institutionalized in in Greece in order to protect the rights of these minorities and things like that. Giving give them a fair go, so to speak, which. Uh, no comments on that, right? But I think it's time for the Church of Greece and the Ecumenical Patriarch, the Arch, you know, the Archbishop of Athens, to, uh, you know, actually raise the flag and bring bring the Orthodox people. You bring all your authority, which you have gathered over the centuries since the Greek Revolution against the Ottoman Empire. Bring that and use it. Actually, use what respect you have of the Greek people and actually bring them to the streets. 
you know, bring them out against this prime minister and his degenerate policies, which will destroy Greek culture and the Greek, you know, social moral system, which again, the EU has been trying to erode for decades at this point. But we do have to keep that in mind. There's the pressures on the Georgian people, Romanians, Bulgarians, and even the strange, you know, the strange statements made by the Georgian patriarch, probably fake, but what statements haven't been fake, unfortunately, even, you know, pretty weird news. But the patriarch of Bulgaria, actually, Patriarch Neofit, uh, Neofitos essentially, is stated outright that he condemned, I mean, he's been in a hospital recently, but he came out of hospital and the first thing he says is he condemns the Russian invasion of Ukraine and he thinks Russia is criminal. It's like, haven't you forgotten, dear patriarch? exactly i mean what special military operation took place in the 1860s and 1870s which country did russia uh invade in order to free the bulgarian people was it the ottoman empire was it the islamic caliphate by any chance but that military operation was completely supported by the bulgarians but this one against nato and the infestation of the kabad and the Mossad and all these other th people holding for holding power in ukraine persecuting the church that isn't legitimate in any capacity i mean you're the patriarch of bulgaria i i just want to have some you know he, he says military action can never be justified I, i'm sorry have you bulgarian history hello let's let's all open a history book for the first time i don't want to of course speak badly about any of these hierarchs of course he just he was he came out of hospital he was unwell but anyways for people not briefing him on exactly what's happening in world news i think that's very offensive so the people in bulgaria actually need to lift their game up a little bit because at the moment these other orthodox countries they all they are being pulled into this the orbit of this unfortunate Western degenerate influence politically as well as culturally speaking. I think this is the trend we're seeing, including, you know, forcing some of these hierarchs even and politicians to make these really bizarre statements. It's very sad. Well, I think as far as Greece goes, I agree with our friend Paisios. He says this, uh, the political solution for Greece is to elect the victory, the Nika party, which we've talked about them on the show before. They have entered, I think, the Greek parliament with a few seats. Uh, they have the most support among clergy and monastics in Greece, including St. Paisios' own family, one of his niece. Uh, one of St. Paisios' nieces is an active party official. It's anti-Freemason, anti-abortion, anti-NATO docs, anti-Zionist, and emphasizes a new pan-Orthodox military and economic alliance with Russia and the Balkan Orthodox nations instead of the EU and NATO. So if you're in Greece, you know, go to the streets, go to some anti-sodomy protests, you know, wave the flag of Christ's face and vote for the victory party. Stop voting for new democracies. Stop voting for the communists, the socialists. Stop voting for... You know, even like maybe vote for the new Golden Dawn party, but even don't vote for them. Vote for the Victory Party, the Nika Party. It's obviously the Orthodox Nationalist Party. So take your country back. You know, stop with this silly, you know, NATO docs, EU nonsense. But yeah, with all of that, again, the Greece Turkey thing is, is always lurking in the background. Turkey asserting itself really in all directions still. And we just know that when Erdogan finally goes or you know, again, there is always the chance that he gets diplomatically swayed back over into the NATO sphere of influence, just, just depending on what happens, of course. But he has gotten a boost of support among his people because of the Gaza situation. And because of that, who knows, maybe he will use Greece's, you know, participation in Operation Prosperity Guardian or Greece's support for the Zionist entity to move on some of those islands. Those things are always possible. Like they said, uh, they like to say that we will come in the night and they won't see it coming and as saint paisio said russia and turkey will go from friends to enemies overnight like that with like the snap of a finger so we're always watching that very closely but with all of that dimitri um that's about all the stories i have to cover is there anything we've missed 
No, I completely agree. Look, with the uh, St. Paisius prophecies about, you know, about the coming conflict between Turkey and Greece, things in, in the world have really occurred overnight, especially conflicts even, you know, between Russia and Ukraine, for example, 24th of February. Nobody really saw it coming. There was some premeditation, but it happened suddenly. A lot of these things, the 24th of June, Prigozhin's March in Moscow, things happen overnight. You literally wake up, watch the news, and there's another conflict somewhere brewing. These uh, these American strikes against the Houthis in Yemen, things happen without any, you don't receive any notifications on your telephone. It's just you check the news, you read your newspaper, you check your Twitter app, things like that. So I think the prophecies actually speak complete truth in this particular capacity, or even the uh, October 7th operation. Nobody really saw that coming, including the Israelis themselves. So things can change very quickly at and Erdogan is you know we've seen them this, this very shrewd politician and look he's preparing his forces by training them essentially sending them to northern Syria to actually fight against these Kurds he's keeping them tense he's actually if anything the Turkish military the Turkish um, air force have had active military training in these battle zones of Syria and Iraq so you have to keep in mind where, where has where has the Greek military been training recently and this despite the fact that you know Turkey is already twice or almost twice as strong as Greece is in terms of military capacity and naval capacity, things like that. So I think uh, definitely certain big things will take place in the future and we'll just have to keep following the news and seeing where all of this leads. And yeah, so I think that's a good place to wrap this up. It was a really packed show. World War Three is in full effect. So we're watching the Red Sea. We're watching, again, East Africa is still very much in play with Somaliland. That situation is developing. So we'll probably have an update for that next week. Of course, South America, always now a relevant front. The election, now the U.S. border, of course, Russia-Ukraine, and the Gaza situation. I mean, it is now, I mean, when we come back on the show, we could be striking other countries. We could have struck Iran by the time we come back next week. So I'll be watching really closely. And with all of that, uh, worldwarnow.substack.com, worldwarnow.co, that's where you can find everything, read all of our articles, listen to all of the shows. You know, again, we're here with some back-to-back -back shows this week, so be sure to check out the previous episode as well as our Easter Hour with Shane Swenson, fantastic American iconographer. It was a really good conversation, so we'll have that linked below. Give it a good listen. Subscribe. Get behind the paywall. It supports us. It helps us keep these weekly shows free for everybody to share this information, and you get access to some really incredible deeply researched episodes. So get behind the paywall, get access to the Ether Hour. That's on the Substack, worldwarnow.co. Linked below, whether you're here on Substack or on YouTube, you can subscribe right below. So get to doing that. But follow us on YouTube, of course, World War Now. Get our subscriber count up. It really helps us out. Follow us on Telegram, World War Now Telly. That's where we're kind of most actively updating you on the Third World War itself. It's where all the sources and, you know, some of these details really come from. I follow hundreds of channels, so I'm surveying the whole situation there. Follow us on Twitter, World War Now underscore. Follow me on Twitter at GnomeRad. Follow Dimitri on Twitter at OCanonist. Uh, follow us on Rumble, World War Now. And yeah, I think that's everything. Dimitri, I'll let you send us off. Thank you guys for your support. Um, check out our latest A for Hour episode with Shane Swenson. I think it's excellent. It really, you know, the different perspective, actually speaking to an iconographer, someone so involved in the church, giving all of his support. I think it's uh, definitely a good episode. Thank you for all our supporters this year. And look, we're only two going on to three weeks now into 2024. And already there's so many, so much news. I mean, every episode is like an hour and a half easily. There's just a lot of stuff to cover. And in fact, I don't think they'll be, we'll be cutting any corners this year in terms of actually reporting this news to you. There's just too much stuff and look forward to next week. And hopefully I, I, I pray that things don't really get out of hand because at this point, 
Uh, it's not even worthy of, I mean, yeah, it's just incredibly concerning. And thank you guys for your support. Um, we will send this one off. God bless everybody. <laughs>